So the title of my sermon is First Encounter with the Civil and Religious Authorities. First Encounter with the Civil and Religious Authorities here in Acts 4. Now you may recall that a great miracle had taken place, and that's where we're at. Chapter 3, this great miracle had taken place. This guy who was in his 40s, who had been outside the temple for decades and decades and decades, is suddenly healed. Everybody knows him. Everybody's seen him, whether they've only seen him for a few years because they're a young kid or they've seen him for decades because they're an older person. And in the midst of the preaching, because remember that's why God does signs, wonders, miracles, the signs, wonders, and miracles aren't done in order to give the minister you know, a hanky ministry that he blesses and sells for exorbitant prices, get healed from my hankies or some nonsense like that. People don't get saved from seeing signs, wonders, and miracles. What those signs, wonders, and miracles do is give the opportunity to do what? Preach, to declare God's word. And that's what the apostle Peter and John are doing. They're preaching. This huge crowd gathers. This guy's been healed. He's all ecstatic, jumping and leaping and praising God. This is no small stir. Thousands upon thousands have gathered Peter preaches. He's given that opportunity by this great miracle to present men men words because men must hear his words in order to be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Amen? So signs, wonders, and miracles aren't an end in themselves. They're a means. They're a means for opportunity to proclaim the truth of God's word to men. And Peter, of course, took that opportunity. So in the midst of this preaching... After the miracle of the crippled man, the Sadducees arrive, being greatly disturbed, it says, by what, the, by what Peter and John were doing. Look at verse 2 there. It says they were disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people. And like the government schools of today, the Sadducees felt they had a monopoly on such a matter. They also were disturbed or bothered, or the best word is actually annoyed. They were annoyed by these guys because they preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, why would that bother the Sadducees? It bothered the Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The other major sect at that time, the Pharisees, did believe in the resurrection of the dead, and these two groups would debate each other all the time and were hostile towards each other over that very point of the resurrection. So the Sadducees are mad because the apostles are infringing on their monopoly, of teaching the people, and they're also mad because they're talking about the resurrection. So the authorities, the temple guard and Sadducees, arrive and arrest Peter and John and place them in custody. Many people think these were just religious authorities. You know, the Sadducees, the temple guard, they're just religious authorities. But the truth is, these religious figures also possess civil authority. Okay, so everybody's got that? They didn't just possess religious authority or ecclesiastical authority. They also possessed civil authority. All scholars are agreed on this. That the high priests, the Sadducees, the temple guards, they all possess civil authority. The temple guard was like a policeman, and the Sadducees were the ruling authorities, both religiously and civilly. Before the Romans arrived, the high priest who was of the Sadducee sect, was viewed as the king and high priest of Israel. 
When the Romans took over, in good Roman fashion, they kept the existing authority structure in place and used them as a puppet regime. The Romans did this everywhere they went. It was a very common practice of theirs. Keep the power structures in place, annex those authorities, and use them for your own ends as a puppet regime. The Sadducees didn't mind this arrangement because the Romans would protect them from the people, who of course were unhappy with this arrangement. (laughs) It would also protect them against invading forces. And they would also be able to live, the Sadducees would, to live comfortable lives in wealth and ease because the Romans always took care of those people who were their puppet regime. The Sadducees, therefore, had a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And some of you have learned from your involvement with the magistrates and with the pro-life and pro-family groups, the status quo can be an awful thing. And it can be a difficult thing to break because people have a vested interest to keep it that way. That's what we have here. The Sadducees have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo as it was to their benefit, both politically and materially. Therefore, a huge unauthorized gathering like this in the temple area, that would need to be addressed. So they go in and they arrest Peter and John. So we go from this great miracle and the preaching of the gospel, wherein verse 4 tells us 5,000 people believe in Christ, are turned to the faith, to a night in jail. (laughs) Right? It's kind of like what Ernie was talking about when we sang the sacred head. Here Jesus came in triumphant just a week earlier. Now he's hanging on the cross. These guys, man, this great miracle. People are all excited. 5,000 are one to Christ. And now they're spending a night in jail. Such is the life of a Christian. Look at verses 5 through 7 as we go on here. And it came to pass on the next day that their elders, uh, rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, talking about Peter and John, in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? This is huge. This gathering is a big, this is a big deal. The apostles Peter and John have been taken before the Sanhedrin. They're taking, what's described here in verse 5 through 7, this is the Sanhedrin. These are the big guys, okay? You're, You're supposed to quake and tremble when you get brought before them after spending a night in jail. These are the reigning civil and religious authorities of Israel, made up mostly of Sadducees, backed by the full power of the Roman government. Notice verse 6 says, And as many as were of the family of the high priest, see that there? And as many as were of the family of the... This is because a handful of wealthy families made up the Sanhedrin. They were there to do the bidding of the Romans. And paramount to the Romans is keep the peace, maintain the status quo. That's how politics works. The high priest prior to the Romans coming was viewed as both the king and the religious leader in Israel. He possessed authority civilly and religiously. Once the Romans arrived, one scholar I read wrote this about that. Quote, 
In New Testament times, the high priest was the chief civil and ecclesiastical dignitary among the Jews. In New Testament times, once the Romans had taken over, the high priest was the chief civil and ecclesiastical dignitary among the Jews. He was a chairman of the Sanhedrin and head of the political relations with the Roman government. The high priest bought the office from the government. He bought that office. And it was worth buying because it got you all kinds of more money once you possessed it. The high priest bought the office from the government and the position was changed every year. Since an ex-high priest, the scholar goes on to say, since an ex-high priest kept his rights to the dignity of the office, a kind of oligarchy of high priesthood was established with many of the privileges being shared by members of his family. Hence verse 6. He finishes by saying, a distinguished and wealthy noble group of families emerged, and listen to this now, and took advantage of society in social, economic, and religious matters, such as the world of politics. That's why good men, men who fear God, Christian men, need to be involved in that realm to bring goodness to what is usually wickedness. So these were the bigwigs. Your life was in their hands. In fact, the Sanhedrin was the Senate and Supreme Court of the nation and had jurisdiction in all non-capital cases. The Sanhedrin consisted of 70 members plus the high priest. So this is, this is who John and Peter are standing in front of. 71 guys. 70 and the high priest. All their wealth, pomp, and authority are present at this gathering. Most would pee on themselves and do whatever they were told by this body of men, but the apostles were different. They served Jesus. They were there to tell of him. They were not fearful of men. They were going to use this opportunity to point these magistrates and religious leaders to to Christ. This is like an evangelistic opportunity to a Christian man. Okay, you're going to drag me in here? while all 71 of you together, I don't even have to make individual appointments with you? And you're going to ask me questions? Wow, thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen? So that's exactly what they're going to do. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, because they ask him, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. Now it says, filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek word used for filled is in the aorist passive. I won't break that all down for you lest you fall asleep. But because it's in the aorist passive, it means it denotes a moment of special inspiration. You know, you're filled with always, God's given you what to say, what to do. He's moved upon you by His Spirit. And remember what Jesus said back in Luke 21? Remember Luke is writing Acts. Well, look back at Luke chapter 21 if you could, and look at verse 12. Luke chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, but before all these things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. 
You know, they're asking, what name or what power do you do this in? You know, look what Jesus said. He's like telling them this is coming after I'm gone for you. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony, exactly what Peter and John are going to use it for. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Surely Peter thought of this in the midst of this situation, filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Christ gave him what to speak. Opportunity to give testimony to the Lord. Verse 9 goes on here and it says, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, again, miracles are for the purpose of declaring the Lord and the gospel to men. Miracles and wonders do not in and of themselves win men to Christ. Rather, it provides opportunity to point men to him and his gospel. Here, we see Peter making note of that. Verse 10, it says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. We talked about the importance of the name in our last sermon in chapter 3, didn't we? The importance of the name. So you didn't hear that one? You can listen to that one later when we post it up there. So Peter declares in verses 11 and 12, he says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Talking about Jesus. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Talking about Jesus. Hallelujah. So here he is declaring salvation to these magistrates and religious figures. They're using this opportunity to point these officials to Christ. To call them to right standing with God. Verse 13 says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. See, they had been up against Jesus before and they knew what he was like. And they knew that he had confounded them on numerous occasions. And here are his disciples. They see those characteristics in his disciples. The same characteristics they saw in Christ. So they perceive that they're uneducated, untrained in theological matters like us great Sadducees. And yet, they speak well. And they seem to have a message that they feel sure of. And they're able to articulate it properly. Jesus radically changes us. You know that? When you come to Christ? And one of the things he changes is the importance of using our mind. Because the scripture reads that we are to love him with all our heart, strength, soul, and mind. That's what we're supposed to do. So once we know Jesus, we actually want to learn stuff. Before I knew Jesus, I didn't really have that much of an interest in learning stuff. Um, the government schools made sure everything was amazingly boring. And so why would I care about learning stuff? 
And the truth of the matter is, once I came to know Christ, I wanted to read. I wanted to read books. I wanted to learn. When I talked to other people about Jesus and I didn't have an answer, I wanted to study more so I could give an answer. So I wouldn't look dopey to the next guy, right? So I could give a reason, an answer to the person. A mark of a Christian is the mind. Much in American Christianity wants the Christian to take their mind and put it on the shelf. We should not. We should use our minds to his glory, to glorify him. Hugely important. So they viewed them as uneducated and untrained men, yet they marveled at how they spoke. And that's how you can be too. You don't need a college degree. You know, most people who love to read have read far more than anybody with that, that piece of paper in their hand. That's just a fact. So I, I hope you want to love him with your mind. So it goes on in verse 14 and it says, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Can you imagine their situation? Here's the dude who they've seen for decades sitting outside the temple. So you know this isn't like some rouge, right? You know, so this isn't like some pretend deal. This isn't Benny Inn, okay? This is like the real deal. This is like this guy's really been healed. He's standing there. And all they're thinking about is what? Maintaining the status quo. And this is messing the status quo up. This is like totally messing the status quo up because this guy has been healed in Jesus' name who we crucified. (laughs) So that's not, this is not good. We got a problem, Houston. (laughs) You know, we have a problem on our hands here. This is, this isn't good. The dude is standing right there with them. <laughs> so, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Right? Say nothing against it. So the, the thing they're concerned about is maintaining the status quo. They're not concerned about their own souls. They're not concerned about the fact of, wow, maybe I should consider what these guys are saying. I mean, the guy is standing there. No, they're not concerned about anything that they have too much invested in the power and privilege they had come to enjoy. So look what happens next, verses 15 and 16. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Why was it evident to all who dwelt in Jerusalem? Because everybody came to the temple. Everybody had seen him. Even if you were a little kid, you've seen him for a few years. If you're an older person, you saw him for decades. And here he is standing there. He's totally healed. And they're pointing men to Jesus, the guy we crucified. What are we going to do about this? And this is messed up. And by the way, think of the wisdom of God in healing this man of all people in order to provide opportunity to point men to Christ and to put these wicked men in the pinch they now find themselves. You can't make that stuff up. Talk about the wisdom of God in healing this man. So in verse 17 it says, but so that it spreads no further, because that's their main concern, that it not spread any further. Little did they know, 5,000 had believed already. There's going to be some spreading going on. <laughs> right? 
But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. Not just kind of threaten them, not just kind of read between the lines threaten them. Let's severely threaten them. That from now on they speak to no man in this name. The importance of the name again. Make sure you listen to chapter 3's sermon on that. So they decide to threaten them. And an historical point that needs to be made here is that in Jewish law, ignorance was a defense in non-capital matters. Ignorance was a defense in non-capital matters. So those who violated matters had to be warned first. That is precisely what the Jewish leaders are doing here to Peter and John. They could only do what they were doing, threaten them. I can assure you they wanted to do far more. And after this, during future confrontations between the disciples and the authorities, they would do more. Verse 18, let's go on. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. So they warn the apostles to not speak at all in the name of Jesus. And how do the apostles respond to this severe threat? Did they say, oh, definitely, we simply did not know. You are the civil authority, so we will do whatever you say. Romans 13 is clear. We should do whatever you say. Your voice is the voice of God. We have read Thomas Hobbes. And all our American ministers have taught us well. We will obey. Is that how they responded? To them, ordering them not to any longer speak of Jesus? No, that's not quite how they responded. Verses 19 and 20 show us how they did respond. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Amen? They're like, we're just going to continue to tell people about Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's like, they didn't say it like, we're just going to go tell people about Jesus, but that's what they were saying to them. We're just going to tell people about Jesus. Right? That's, that's what they're saying. The apostles make clear here, in the very first confrontation with the civil religious authorities, the standard for God's people found throughout Holy Writ. That when the state commands that which God forbids, or forbids that which God commands, we are to obey God rather than man. Amen? That is the standard Old Testament, New Testament. And here they declare it right here. This will come up again and again in Acts, and I will address this matter further in a subsequent sermon, but let's move along. Verse 20, verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, see, they were like, these guys aren't getting this. <laughs> you know, it's like, we didn't like that answer. That was pretty messed up. So we'll threaten them some more. Okay? And, that, and that's what they did. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because they couldn't lawfully do so. They had to warn them first. And it also says, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. 
They could not punish them further as they had to serve them notice first. They're hoping that their threats will do the trick, that like the American Christians of our day, the apostles will find a way to justify their voluntary silence, and that will be the end of it. Because American Christians, we're so great. We are so great at justifying our silence. (laughs) It's a sad state of affairs. How the governments of men can impugn the law and word of God and American Christians can be silent. Always stuns me. It should bother us. And they're in a real pinch because guess what? They can't just do this off in a corner somewhere because the people are all excited about this great miracle that took place that this guy was healed. So they're in a hard spot, these guys. So they threaten him more and they let him go. Verse 22 notes that the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So this is when some five-year-old kid who suddenly had some physical transition take place, right? It's like a huge deal. So the Sadducees were not concerned about their souls. They were only concerned about maintaining the status quo. Notice they never even challenged the apostles regarding Jesus' resurrection. Was it odd to you? They, they didn't even challenge them on Jesus, on their assertion that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. They never opposed the veracity of the resurrection. And that is because the Sadducees placed the guard at Jesus' tomb. They questioned them later about his resurrection. And they paid them to say the disciples had stolen his body. So you have to understand, they put their guards there, which possessed civil authority from the Roman government. A lot of people think all oh, these were Roman legionnaires who guarded the tomb when Jesus died. doesn't say anything of the sort. Let's look at that, by the way. Turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. So some of you are realizing, wow, i got to use my brain when Pastor Matt preaches. He just doesn't use slogans and make me feel all amped up after drinking that wonderful coffee you know? So anyways, Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 66. It says, um, it says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees, so all these guys, even the Pharisees are in on this, gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said after three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception be worse than the first. And look what Pilate said to them. You have a guard. You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the tomb and setting the guard. Their temple guards possess lawful civil authority. 
They're the ones who guarded the tomb of Jesus Christ. So, when I say that's because they placed the guard at Jesus' tomb, they questioned them later about his resurrection, and they paid them to say the disciples had stolen his body, it's because they did. These weren't Roman legionnaires. It was their guard which possessed civil authority. And with the backing of the Roman government, Pontius Pilate told him, seal it. So here's the deal. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. Matthew 28, the very next chapter, verses 11 through 15. It says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. What had happened? Jesus rose from the dead. That's what happened. When they had assembled with the elders, you could just imagine, you know, the courier pigeons sending that message out in haste. Little runners, little, you know, 12-year-old boys, take this over to Caiaphas. They're all gathering together. However they did it then, they couldn't text each other. There was no Facebook group. They got word. You know they assembled quickly. It was like a huge deal. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So on this passage, some scholars believe that it was a mixture of temple guards and Roman soldiers. Others believe it was just temple guards. But the point is, again... The reason they didn't question Peter and John about the veracity of the resurrection is because they had already been doing damage control regarding that matter. They're the ones who set the guard there. They questioned them after the body was gone. And they paid them to lie. They didn't want to bring that up at this gathering. The Sadducees and priests didn't oppose the disciples on their claim of the resurrection as they knew themselves it was true. Making sure they created doubt by paying men bribes was good enough for them, the status quo being paramount. Maintaining the status quo is most important to them. Securing their power and their privilege was most important to them. So, In verses 23 through 31, which we'll cover in short fashion here, we see what happened when Peter and John went back and reported to the disciples what had happened. It says in verse 23, And being let go, that always feels good. How many have ever been in jail for doing something righteous? Okay, man, does it feel good when you get let go? It's just like, oh, this is awesome. (laughs) I'm just so happy to be let go. (laughs) So... I don't want to die in some prison somewhere. I, I, every time I got let go, I was like, oh, this was great. I mean, it was great while you were in there, but thank God it wasn't till the day you took your last breath, right? <laughs> you know, you to point men to Christ. That's the great thing about being a Christian. You get to serve them wherever you're at. So anyways, um, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And verse 24 says, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
they decide to cry out to God and pray. Because of these threatenings, because of this confrontation with the civil and ecclesiastical authorities, they decide to pray. That's their response. Verses 25 through 27 goes on and says, Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, or his anointed. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. Gathered together. And this is the whole history of the world. Conspiring to destroy the Christ and Christianity. To undermine his kingdom and oppress his people. That is the whole history of the world. You look at the wickedness of our nation, the wickedness of our government, just about every law, policy, or court opinion they produce is 100% at antithesis with the law and word of God. They are at war with Christ. They are at war with Christianity. It is the history of the world. And that's how the breakdown lays in the land. But look what verse 28 says. It says, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. God is the great sovereign. He uses everything, even bad, for his purposes and good. Just read Romans chapter 8 at the end of that chapter. The Lord determined beforehand all that should happen with Jesus. He determined it. It was according to his purpose, according to his will. They thought they had killed this deceiver named Jesus. It was all part of God's plan for him to die for the sins of men so that if a man will turn from his sin and believe in Christ, he can obtain forgiveness of his sin and right standing with the Father. What they meant for evil, God used for good. It was according to his plan. Verses 25 and 26 are quoted from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm concerning Christ, and I want us to read that. So turn there to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. This was the psalm early churchmen, and especially early missionaries, used to point the magistrates to Christ. Because they regularly and routinely went to the magistrates first whenever they went to a new geographical area to bring Christ to the people. They went to the magistrates first. And this was the psalm that they would read to the magistrates. Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They don't want Christ's rule. They want to rule how they want to rule. They want to make sure it benefits them, not him. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. 
Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Talking about Christ, Jesus. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The early churchmen and missionaries understood that the gospel was for individuals, but it was also for nations. That God's law and word was for individuals, but it's also to impact nations, change nations, do a great work in that way. And here you see in Psalm 2 this great conflict between the city of God and the city of men, between the governments of men and the Lord's anointed, His Son, Jesus Christ. You see that conflict. And this is the whole history of Christ and Christianity. The city of men have been at war with Christ and his ways and his people through all of time. And in the end, the Lord will prevail. He will prevail. Back here at at Acts 4, look at verse 29. It says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Notice that they did not pray for relief from their oppressors. You don't see that here, do you? They didn't pray for relief of their oppressors, and there is a time for that to do so. But what these early Christians prayed for is they prayed for the Lord to give them boldness to speak His Word. His kingdom is on the offense. His is a conquestorial kingdom. Hence Jesus' words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is not a defensive statement. That's an offensive statement. The kingdom of God is moving forward in the earth and the gates of hell are trampled before his kingdom. They will not prevail against him. His kingdom is not on the defensive, as most all of Christianity has made it into. Rather, it is on the offensive. You have a sword. It is his word. Wield it. Our days are short on this earth. Wield it. Wield the sword of the word. Point others to the Christ. In verse 30, as it goes on here, it says, By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Again, Luke juxtaposes miracles and wonders with preaching the word. You see that? Verse 29 and 30. That is the reason for such a sign. They provide an opportunity to preach and call men to repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. Verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, 
the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Remember, it's just like back in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Where they were assembled together was shaken. This is a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the Word of God with boldness. This is the result. A fresh filling of the Spirit and the Word spoken with boldness. Though you may want to get up in the morning and grab your phone and see what the latest thing the guy you're debating had to say, so like you're in a chess match and you can say back what you have to say, or like you want to look up and see what you know the latest news is, do we even exist anymore? You know, I woke up one morning this past week, I thought the whole world was going insane. I did that one morning. That was the first thing I did in the morning. Check out the news. Didn't even get out of bed yet. Looking at the news. I'm like, what in the world? Oh, this place, we're doomed. So often I read stuff and I'm like, we're doomed. So like, New York is declaring mandated government demanded vaccinations with threats of criminal reprisal to parents who don't vaccinate their kids. And I forget the other two things, but there was like three things. And I'm thinking to myself, this can't be true. Somebody's just, no, it's true. This place is melting down. Draw close to Christ. Amen? Be faithful to him. Declare the truth of his word. So even though you may want to pick up your phone, don't do it. Don't do it. Get out of your bed. Let your knees feel that wood. You might have carpet. I don't know. I don't like carpet. I've torn out too many old carpets. And um, so we have wood. Let your knees feel that wood. Commune with him. Amen? Makes a huge difference for your day. And using it properly to glorify him. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah, Lord. Father, we rejoice in you and give thanks to you for this time we had in your word and we thank you that you have preserved it so that we can study it and know your ways and your thoughts so we can see you at work in the affairs of men. Lord, build within each one here your kingdom. Cause each one's heart to burn within them to want to point others to you to declare the truth of your law, your word, your gospel to men, to not hide it under a bushel, but to point men to you in all areas of life. Lord, I ask and pray that your goodness would extend to each home. I pray that each man here would open your word to his wife and his children, that they would talk about the things of you. Lord, be glorified through each one of our lives, I pray. Use each one here by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise his name. Could be seated. And we're going to take communion at this time. And you can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take communion as the Lord's table is only for believers to observe. But if you are a Christian, feel free to join at the Lord's table with us. And we observe his table every week at mercy seat. And we do that first and foremost 
because it's what the early church did. It was a pattern laid down because they understand the importance of remembering how great a salvation has been brought to them through Christ. And so we also spend time at his table each week to remember how great a salvation this is, that all we have at his table is the fruit of the vine representing his shed blood and the bread representing his body and nothing else, showing us that it's through Christ plus nothing whereby God accepts us. Amen? There isn't these two elements plus a list of all my good works or a list of all my holy deeds. The good works I do, the holy deeds I perform, those things are the result of my saving faith. They're the evidence or the fruit of my saving faith. I don't do those things to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, I do them because I have obtained his acceptance. That's massively important to understand. A whole reformation took place over that very point. That's how important it is. The Apostle Paul wrote of the Lord's table and he said, For I received from the Lord in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What brought us right standing with the Father? It's Christ. His substitutionary, propitiatory work at Calvary brought us right standing with God through faith. Amen? Praise his holy name. And that's what we're reminded of here. That whether we've been a Christian for five seconds or 55 years, our sole approach to the Father is always only through faith in Jesus plus nothing. Only through Christ do we obtain right standing with God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great salvation that you have provided us with through your Son. We thank you that you redeemed us not with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with his own precious blood. And Lord, I ask and pray we would therefore be your faithful ambassadors in the earth, making known your holy law and this great salvation to men, that we would understand the importance of doing that. Hallelujah, Lord. Lord, I ask that you move upon each one here this coming week by the power of your Holy Spirit and pressing upon them to tell others of you. Be glorified through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Praise his name. Let's stand up and worship him and I'll close in prayer. Hallelujah, Lord. All praise to you, O God. Blessed be thy name, O Lord. Father, we thank you for this time at your table, thinking well upon your great salvation that you provide us with. Lord, may we serve you in the earth, I pray. Lord, I ask and pray now that you watch over all those who are going to be traveling on this campus tour. 
Guide and lead that effort, O Lord, and use it mightily in the lives of many. Cause no small stir upon the campuses, we pray. Man cannot contrive such things. They have to be birthed by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that they would be. Lord, we ask and pray that those who name your name there would deepen their walk because of our walk with you because of our visit there. Lord, all the brothers and sisters here, regardless of where they're headed this week, in the marketplace, their workplace, wherever they may go, anoint them powerfully by your Spirit. And may they point others to your Son, Jesus Christ. May they speak of others about the things of you. May they fish for men saying something and seeing what kind of response they get. Fishing for men, O oh God. Be glorified, we ask and pray, through our lives. Keep our hearts hungry for you, desirous to seek you. Protect each one. Use them powerfully, we pray. Build up each home here in the strength of your word and spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.